and trust that uh, you can join in in the worship and uh, learning of your word this morning. I already did share what I, some of my thoughts about uh, the opening meditation. I appreciated that. I was a little concerned when I was out back and I realized I left my notes up here under a psalm book. <laughs> wasn't sure if I'd get them back, but they were still here. So uh, I guess we won't go home right now after all. So, yeah, well, you can turn to Second Peter, that we're going through Second Peter. And... Uh, I'll read some of the verses there. It's also good to have a bad memory because then the things that you don't take home stay here. <laughs> this is the chart that we have been, have been using the last couple of times. Peter, as you open to Second Peter, he was writing to first and second generation Christians. Just before he was martyred, he had some concerns, so he began the letter by reminding them of the abundant provisions that they have in Jesus Christ. In the Lord Jesus, we have everything we need in potential. Because he rose from the dead, he took the devil on in his own turf, he met the devil, and the devil was defeated at every turn. Every time the devil came and tempted him, he defeated the, Lord, the devil. And when the devil finally decided he's going to kill him, get rid of him for good, that was actually the death knell for the devil's power. Because when he rose from the dead, the power of the devil was destroyed to all those who enter in to the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Peter has some admonitions for God's people, he starts right there. You, as God's people, have everything you need. You have abundant provisions. And the thing is, we actually need those provisions because even though the devil was defeated, he is still here. We still have the world and the flesh and the devil. We still live in a worldly system that the devil operates. We live in the middle of it. And it makes demands on us that we must resist. We still have the flesh, that same flesh that Joseph had. We still have that same flesh. And we need to. Uh, and our emotions are calling us to, debate, to disobey God's law. 
And then we have the devil who, who opposes us and he tries to deceive us. So we are invited to partake of that divine nature. But it's not a let go and let God. It's not that kind of situation. It is a trust God and get going. That's the nutshell that God calls us to. Trust God and get going. There is a life of victory and service to be lived out now, and there is an eternal life to be gained in the future. And there's a pathway marked out by Peter, and it's to add to the faith. So let's read there, and I'm going to read verses 5 to 11 this morning, after he talks about the abundant provisions. And besides this, Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall be neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this morning, we will continue to climb up the ladder of Christian graces. Peter makes it emphatically clear that these graces are essential for fruitfulness in our lives. And the lack of them means failure on multiple fronts. So, He says to add, supplement, uh, nurture, cultivate to your faith, virtue, and so on. We had looked at the first five earlier, and now we have the last two of those graces. And I'll get over one this morning. But the two are together. They are the, what I would call the trademark of the Christian. Brotherly kindness and charity are the trademark of the Christian. It's the top of the pillar. It's not the settled base of commitment. It's not the strong steward of the tower, the strength of that pillar. It's the part on the top that is beautified, that is is meant for display and beauty and grace. It's the compassionate part of the Christian. You know, we need we need this part, we need the commitment, we need the courage. But what good are they if they don't come to here? 
It's called the social or the compassionate part of a Christian. Compassion, like Christ, is the crowning beauty of the pillar of core values. A person is not complete without it. Just as a Christian is not complete without commitment, neither is a Christian complete without courage, neither are we complete without compassion. So we have commitment, courage, and compassion. The three core values. With them flourishing in my and your life, we will prosper spiritually. Without them, we will flounder and falter and fail. And that's basically the the truth of the matter. Now to the subject here. To dwell above with the Lord we love. Oh, that will be glory. To dwell below with saints we know. Well, that's another story. You know, we chuckle at that statement because we all recognize the dilemma we find ourselves in. If we're talking about brotherly kindness this morning, okay? We know that we should be getting along better with one another than what we do. But many times, and painfully so, we find it very difficult. Some other Christians are really hard to get along with. Did you know that? Of course, it's not my fault. (laughs) Is it? So the first of the compassion virtues is brotherly kindness. And the Greek word for brotherly kindness is probably the most well-known Greek word that the English language has. Does anybody know what that language is, what that word is? Brotherly kindness. What's the Greek word for brotherly kindness? Philadelphia. Philadelphia. And that's the title of the message, Add to Your Faith, Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love. When William Penn came, he chose a name that matched his vision, his dream. A city of brotherly love where people can be together. Now, somebody has said it has morphed into the city of brotherly shove. I'm not sure the brotherly is there anymore. So, brotherly kindness is the word Philadelphia, and it's a compound Greek word, phila, which is one of the uh, one of the Greek words for love. Uh, you may be familiar with the uh, Greek word for love. In English, we only have one word for love. We have when. When we talk about loving God, and when we hear of a movie star who is doing illicit things with another woman, we call the both same, both activities love. Because we only have one word, but the ancient Greeks had at least five words. Actually, you can find more. Some of them are familiar. Agape, phila, eros. 
Storge and Pragma. Now, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing all of them correctly. But I found it interesting that pragma is one of those words. Uh, it's the word for a long-lasting love like an older couple would have. And I didn't study it, but I could maybe someday. Is that where the word pragmatic comes from? I, I, I believe it probably is, but I didn't study it. Storgi, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, I didn't check that, is a parent-child love. The eros is a romantic or sexual love. But the two words that are used over and over again in scripture are phileo, which is a word phila comes from, and agape or agapeo. Here in Peter... Brotherly kindness means to phileo your spiritual brother. Delphia means brother. And in the Greeks, they actually used it for family relationship, mean real family. But in the New Testament, it's taken into the spiritual family area. And then the last of the seven graces is charity, which is the word agape. Agape love is that one. So we have the two words for love in the last two of the compassion graces. Now, phileo means to have a special interest in someone or something. Frequently, we focus on close association. It's to have affection for. It's to consider someone a friend. It refers to a strong liking or a strong friendship. Phileo gets translated love in in a modern way when we say we love ice cream. Or I love my job, if that's the case. (laughs) That, That would imply the word phileo. Because you have an emotional, affectionate desire for something. A few examples from the Bible. When the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil, there in 1 Timothy chapter 6, there we have the word Philaguria, I can, I think something like Philaguria. It's the same word, Phila, at the beginning. It's a love of money. So, it's a compound word. It's the same word when it talks about the older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands. That same word, Phila, comes in there with a love of husband. Our modern word, philanthropy, no, I said that wrong, philanthropy, means the desire to promote the welfare of others, usually in giving large amounts of money or some kind of charitable organization. And the Greek word, it comes from Greek, and it means a love of man, a love of humanity, love of mankind. So I'm going to test you on one word. Uh, philatus, 
I'm going to spell it, and you see if you can know what uh, this Greek word is. Better make sure I spelled it right. Anybody want to guess what that means? Yes. No. <laughs> Where did cars get their name? Go back further. Yes. Love of self. Auto. Self. Self-propelled. That's the word for love of self. And you can go through the Greek. There's many of those words. You have this phileo word that is a compound word and, and is used that way. When we are told by Paul and Peter to greet each one with a holy kiss, that word kiss is the word philema. Again, it is an affectionate, brotherly, um, emotional attachment type of a kiss. Exactly, uh, it's a compound word. Uh, that word, not holy. Holy means separated. But the word kiss is a compound word in Greek with that same beginning. Now, uh, these two... Bible words about love that is mostly in the Bible, phileo and agape, actually overlap some. And I'm going to give you an example of what I mean. Uh, you can turn to John chapter 3, verse 35. I'd like you to see this. John chapter 3, verse 35. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. Now that word loveth is the word agapeo. It's the word agape, the word agape there. The Father agape the Son. If you turn a few pages down, back to John chapter 5, verse 20. Chapter 5, verse 20. For the Father loveth, he phileos the Son, and showeth him all things that he himself doeth. So the Father both agapes and phileos the Son. He uses both words for the same person, but it's so you can see that there's overlap, and yet they are not the same. Otherwise, we would not have two separate words, two separate admonitions for, uh, for the same thing there. Agape has more to do with the will, with a choice, with a purpose. Phileo has more to do with emotion and affection. For example, we are never told to phileo our enemies, but we are told to agape our enemies. And the reason is, it is pretty difficult to have a strong emotional attachment to someone who's hurting you. But put that aside. God says, purpose with your will to do good to your enemy. And he commands that. 
And you, we can do that by God's grace. But we may not be able to bring our emotions along, and that's okay. God is not asking us to do that, but he is asking us to agape our enemies. In other words, you are never told to kiss your enemy. But you're told to have an affectionate kiss for your brothers and your sisters. We are commanded, for our fellow believers, we are commanded to phileo them, to have tender, affectionate love for them. So, the first five graces about, first five graces that we have, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, and godliness, was about our personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. It's about See, the Christian life is very, it's a personal thing. Um, every one of us must personally repent and believe the gospel. We must personally walk with God. We must personally worship the Lord, personally pray to him, personally listen to his voice. We can never walk with God on the coattails of someone else. Someone else's experience, someone else's whatever. It must be your personal walk and connection with God. There is no such thing as a group relationship that can take the place of a personal identification with the Lord. You can't be born into a family that, be it ever so good of a Christian home, that will not take us through because it has to be personal. Same thing with a church. Church membership. When a baby is born, a baby is born individually. And you might say, well, I'm a twin. (laughs) Or a triplet. You were still born Individually, there was individual life in each child. And that's how a Christian is. Each Christian is born individually. You are around others and you belong to several or various identity, uh, entities, but as an individual, you have your own walk with God. And so that's the first five graces. is primarily about your own walk with God. But, When you become a Christian, you become a part of a body. You become part of a new uh, identity, a new group of people. So there is the, here in what we're talking about this morning, is the outworking of a personal, individual walk with God. And here is something I'm going to repeat a few times, this statement. A right relationship with God must produce a right relationship with our fellow believers. That is about as clear and as basic as anything that is revealed in Scripture. 
I could repeat it, and I'm going to add one other phrase. A right relationship with God must produce a right relationship with our fellow believers and our fellow man. So, that is clear from Scripture. Let's just go on that a little bit. And uh, I will read there in Matthew chapter 22, verse, starting at verse 37, talking about the two great commandments. Jesus said unto him, when this, I think this is the case where the young man came to Jesus. He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Because love summarizes the whole duty that we have towards God and towards our fellow man. James says that loving your neighbor as yourself, that's the royal law. Royal law. And in John says that if we say we love God and don't love our fellow man, he said, you're lying. If you say you love God and don't love your fellow man, you're lying. Because love is the pinnacle of Christian graces. In the love chapter, on first, in 1 Corinthians 13, in the last verse in that chapter, it says, And now abideth faith, hope, and charity. That's agape. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. In Romans 13.8, we are commanded and informed, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. And Jesus proclaimed, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. A right relationship with God must produce a right relationship with our fellow believers and our fellow man. That is very, very basic. Now, when we take the strength of these verses and we minimize some other truths, it is actually quite easy to understand why some sincere people come to the conclusion that there is no law or commandments from God anymore. The logical step is taken that if love is the fulfilling of the law, then there is no longer any law. That makes a logical conclude. That makes a logical sense, doesn't it? The only thing God asks of us is to love each other and to do the loving thing. And going by the same logic, the only sin we can commit is the sin of not loving each other or not loving one another. And we actually hear that today, don't we? Don't judge, don't criticize, don't condemn, just love. If it were true that there is no law but the law to love, then when you repent of your sin, the only sin you need to repent of 
is your sin of not loving. That's true also, right? To God and to others. But how do you know that you don't, that you love or that you don't love God? How do you know that? Because you run roughshod over his commandments. That's how you know. Loving God means obeying him. Jesus says it just that plainly. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's plural, not one, not singular, not my commandment to love. My commandments. It means loving what God loves and hating what God hates, because that's what Jesus did. God's moral law is eternal. All the way back to when Cain was beginning to struggle with his relationship with his brother. The whole way back to the churches in Revelation when Jesus said, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. God has an expectation and a standard and a will for his people to walk in, humanity. But, if it is done, if it is performed without love, then it is nothing. See, love is the absolute essential thing because when it's first Corinthians is so clear that you can give all your goods away, you can even be a martyr, but you do it without love, it's zeal. Love does not negate or supersede or replace God's law. Love fulfills it by obeying God from the heart. Love keeps the letter of the law by obeying the spirit of the letter. That's what love does. Love keeps the letter of the law by obeying the spirit of the letter. David in the Old Covenant understood some of the New Covenant. And when he said there in Psalms 119, he said, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. He understood. There was the law of God. He loved it. And he embraced the two together. Let's not divorce loving God from keeping his commandments. A right relationship with God must produce a right relationship with our fellow believers and our fellow man. Okay, this morning, Peter is telling us to add brotherly kindness. Add Philadelphia. Add tender affection to your fellow believers. I'm sorry, add tender affection for your fellow believers to your self-control, to your patience, to your godliness. Now add brotherly, affectionate kindness. And now we know, now we know why we needed self-control and patience. 
if you're going to have affectionate love for other people, you're going to need some self-control. You're going to need some patience, maybe lots of it. So maybe that's why that came first on the pillar. I think it did. We will need it. The word Philadelphia is only found a few times in the Bible, so we have the privilege this morning of looking up each time that it occurs. So let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Paul is just done, just got done giving the Thessalonians a mild reprimand. He talked to them about moral purity. He talked to them about not defrauding each other. And he gave them some instruction, some exhortation. But then at verse 9, he gives them a commendation. Here's the commendation. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. I'm going to stop right there. Where did they get taught to have Philadelphia? Who taught them? God did. He said, I wouldn't even have to tell you this because God taught you this. Now I'm going to go back to my statement. A right relationship with God must produce a right relationship with one another. It's an outgrowth. They had... They were a young church. They had a right relationship with God, and out of that relationship, they were taught to love one another. <clears throat> that means if someone, this is a logical conclusion, okay? It's not, a, it's not an ultimate statement, but it is a general It means if someone does not have this brotherly love, it puts into doubt their very salvation. Now, you can take that too far. It may mean a lot of things. Apostasy, some other difficulties, it can mean a lot of things. But a lack of love for a fellow believers puts a question mark because we are taught of God to do this. It is something that God, if he had access into a believing heart, will teach. It is one of the marks of a true Christian. And then we could say, well, if that's the case, then case closed. This takes care of itself automatically. God teaches it. Then I get it. And I have it. And that's all we need. But... I didn't finish that verse, as you were looking after. And we're going to read the verse, the rest of it. Here comes the exhortation. After he gave him a commendation, he gave him an exhortation. Rest of verse 10. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. 
They had brotherly kindness. They were taught of God, but it needed to grow. It needed to increase. Again, it's not a let go and let God. It is a trust God and get going. It is this brotherly kindness is both a gift of God and it is a cultivated practice. You know, all of the fruit of the Spirit is that. Did you know that? And we can divide down those ways and emphasize one or emphasize another. But the fruit of the Spirit, I've heard messages preached, and they're good messages, they're right. That if you have the Spirit of God in your life, the fruit will manifest itself. Right, that's true, right. A, a, a good tree brings forth good fruit. But every one of those fruits of the Spirit, we are commanded to cultivate. It is not one, and neither is it the other. And that's how this one is. Brotherly kindness. It's both something that God teaches you, and it's something you need to cultivate. And that is what Peter is saying at it. Paul is saying, I beseech you, and Peter is saying here, add brotherly kindness. Well, what? let's go to another one that will give a little bit more of an idea of what we should add. You can turn to Romans chapter 12, and we'll read one verse there, verse 9. Romans 12, verse 9. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Here we have two Greek words, two phileo words. The um, kindly affection is almost the same as Philadelphia. It's phila stogos, I guess, phila stogos. And you remember I had given you five words for Greek and one of them was one of the words for parental love was storges or storge or something like that. Well, here is actually that parental. That is the, the two words for love right in this one word, one Greek word. You so we have phileo and we have storge. And um, we have a verse that is just. Flat out full of love words. Let's say it that way. <laughs> the two compound Greek words for love in one verse. There is love all over this thing. Well, what does that look like? I chose to read a few other versions just to give us a perspective of what that looks like. And the King James says, Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love, preferring one another. The New Living Translation says, Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. The ESV says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This teaches us that brotherly kindness has genuine 
tender, family-like affection and devotion to our fellow believer. And how does that work out in real life? Well, put them first. That is one expression of this kind of care for others. Outdo one another in preferring each other. Put others ahead of yourself willingly and cheerfully. Boy, wouldn't that change a home atmosphere sometimes? (laughs) Where would sibling rivalry end up at if just is one truth were a reality in each of our homes? Then again, what about our churches? Prefer them. Put them ahead of yourself, willingly, cheerfully. We often hear that agape love is the highest form of love, and there are some ways in which that is true. Because agape is a selfless, self-sacrificing, giving type of love. But phileo is a high enough standard. If we're going to just take this standard, we got enough to chew on. It has some selfless, self-sacrificing, giving type of love in this word also. But what we need is having it coming out of a heart that delights in seeing the other person blessed. You know, when Peter says, add this to your faith, a heart that delights in blessing other brothers and sisters, add that to your faith, add that to your self-control and to your patience and to your knowledge and all those things, add that. That is a high kind of love. Okay, let's turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 13 for another place where this word is found. Very short verse. Let Philadelphia continue. (laughs) Let brotherly love continue. Now here's a similar situation as in in the Thessalonians in that the Hebrew Christians had brotherly love. The assumption is they have it. Let it continue. The assumption is they have had it. It's one of the evidences of grace. And brotherly love is being exercised and expressed. Now, some people, because the book of Hebrews uh, throws a wrench into the cogs of their theology... Because Hebrew talks about falling away. It gives real warnings with real possibilities of falling away. And that puts a wrench in the gears of some people's theology. In their own view of eternal security or the perseverance of the saints. So they will say that these people are not real all Christians. They just tasted the heavenly gift. They just tasted of the good word of God. 
but they actually not sat down and feasted. They were actually not real Christians. So they could fall away just before they became a real Christian, and that's what the warnings are for. There's actually much evidence that they were real Christians, and here is another evidence. They had Philadelphia. That is an evidence that you are a Christian, and you have brotherly kindness. It's one of the evidences, and they had it. And now they have an imperative, a command from God. What is the command? Let it continue. Now, what was the Hebrews, the uh, the writer of the Hebrews was writing to this group of people. What was their vulnerability? You know, think about it. The Thessalonian church was a new church. Here was... A church that, or a people that have been Christian for several decades, probably. That's my guess. I don't know exactly, but they've been Christian for a while. They've been through a lot. They were having some serious questions. They had some issues. And what was their vulnerability? It was to discontinue. It was to go back. It was to give up. And so, Paul says to the Thessalonians, they should increase in this. The writer of the Hebrews, which is Paul or maybe not, (laughs) says, don't let it, uh, let it continue. Don't let it diminish. Two different groups of people and two different commands. And you know, That actually implies that we can have brotherly love, but unless it is actively pursued and maintained, it will decrease. That's what we can learn from this verse. So the Thessalonians, I mean the Hebrews, have been going for several decades. They had gone through a lot together, but now they were in danger of losing what they had gained. Have you ever been in a situation where brotherly love was continue, was increasing? And then, conversely, have you ever been in a situation where brotherly love was decreasing? Because it can go both ways. Instead of brotherly love increasing, it decreases into gossip, grumbling, slander, Bitterness, divisiveness, and that's only a partial list. Let brotherly love continue. It will diminish without purposeful. It, uh, on purpose, uh, pursuing it and maintaining it. Eliminating the things that will harm it and adding the things that will build it up. That is, has to be a part of brotherly love and maintaining it. <clears throat> Remember the Revelation account of the church at Ephesus? And they had lost their first love? Now what did they lose? Did they lose their love for God? 
Or did they lose their love for each other? It's actually not completely clear, but probably both. Probably both. Remember how I said earlier we are to keep God's commandments, but if it's done without love, it's a zero. Jesus told this church, if you do not regain your first love, you will end up with a church without me. That's basically what he told him. There are no alternative plans. You deal with that love issue or you will not have me there. Now, it is also true that there were some other churches who were in heresy. The deeds of the Nicolaitans and uh, the um, Balaam and uh, Jezebel and there were a number of things wrong with those churches. Jesus was going to lead those churches for false doctrine also. They weren't going to follow his commands. He's going to leave. But if they weren't going to have love, he's not going to stay either. It's both. And there are no alternatives. Disobedience to his commands got exactly the same verdict as a lack of love. Okay, we'll go to to another one here. 1 Peter chapter 1. You can turn there for the, the last word of Philadelphia. In verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Seeing that ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned Philadelphia, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Peter seemed to be saying the same thing that Paul is saying. When you obey the truth, By the Spirit's prompting, it had a purifying effect on your soul. And one of the Spirit's prompting was this. Sincere love of the brethren. That is an outworking of the purifying effect of listening to the Spirit's promptings. Sincere love of the brethren. And what did we say? A right relationship with God will produce a right relationship with our fellow believers. It's right here again. But then comes an exhortation. It's the admonition. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Again, it seems like that contradiction. They obey God. He told them to love God, to love people. But then he turns around and tells them to do it more. And it seems like a contradiction, but it is not. It's again the um, our part and his part. So Peter is telling us that, number one, Philadelphia is an obedient response to the truth. When they responded to the truth, that's what happened. 
Number two, it flows from a close relationship with Christ. And then number three, it requires purposeful and zealous activity to increase it, to maintain it, to work it out. And that third point comes over and over. It requires purposeful and zealous activity. I have another point, one other clarification that I will end. I will end this on. And it goes a little bit down a different vein. The last part of my message will have a little bit of a different vein that I want to go down. So I want to make sure we clarify the main part of this brotherly kindness message. It is right out of Peter. It is the word for oasis. It's the last part of that verse. See that ye. Love one another with a pure heart, fervently. That is a word for God's people, and that is a word for oasis. But I have another final thought, and you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 for that, just one page over. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Finally, and because it's a good ending to a message here too, right? Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. That word love as brethren is actually the word Philadelphia in a, just a different variation. Philadelphos is all it is. It's the very same word in a different um, tense. We could meditate on this verse a long time and let the Spirit purify our hearts because it is a packed verse. Be ye of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, and be courteous. That's a message in itself. But there's a new, a different thought in this verse that I want to talk about now. Be ye all of one mind. Now, how does Philadelphia work out when Christians aren't of one mind? When there are differing opinions, how does brotherly kindness work out? As you know, we were having an annual minister's meetings in Indiana. It was formed six years ago because of the serious concern of where the charity churches were moving, direction they were going. Basically, an invitation was given to the conservative ministry of the charity movement to get together to encourage each other and to see if a distinct direction can be charted together. Not all the churches were invited. Some were purposefully excluded. 
and some others will likely be excluded in the future. How does that fit with a message like we had this morning? How does loving your brother fit with excluding your brother? It's not a non-issue. I'm going to use an example that is far enough away from us that we can look at a process without getting emotionally attached to it. Because when we are emotionally attached to someone, we don't usually make rational decisions. (laughs) We make bad observations and sometimes really bad choices when our emotions are involved. So I'm going to go out there and I'm going to look at a situation, we're going to look at it, and then we can apply it to where we're at. I'm going to way out, maybe not way out for some of you, the Southern Baptist Convention. It's actually the Southern Baptist Convention conservative resurgence is actually the issue. And I'm going to do some reading, explanation, and how they went through some kind of process. Okay? Beginning in 1960, the Southern Baptist Convention was experiencing intense struggle for control of that organization. It was, this resurgence was launched with the charge that the seminaries and the denominational agencies were dominated by liberals. There's that word. And this movement was primarily aimed at reorienting the, dominate, the denomination away from, liberal, from a liberal trajectory towards a clear affirmation of biblical inerrancy. So biblical inerrancy was one of the issues that was being challenged by the liberals, I guess we're going to call that. Now, it was achieved by mostly by a systematic election beginning in 1979 of conservative individuals to lead the Southern Baptist Convention. Theologically moderate and liberal leaders were voted out of office. Some senior employees were fired. I mean, I'm assuming that there were some people who couldn't be voted out of office. They were just simply fired. And conversely, but most were elected out. So what happened is moderate and liberal presidents, professors, and departments of head of Southern Baptist seminaries, mission groups, and other convention-owned institutions were replaced with conservatives. Al Mohler which became the uh, president of the Southern Baptist Convention in 1993, he's still living, later described it as a reformation achieved at an incredibly high cost. Some of that cost was the division of families and churches. About 1,900 churches left the Southern Baptist Convention to form the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, 
which was a moderate Baptist group which affirms women in in ordained ministry and emphasizes the Baptist principles of autonomy of the local church, the priesthood of all believers, and soul liberty. I looked what soul liberty mean, and I think what it basically means is that you have your walk with God and others are not. It's individual conscience pretty well, I think, is what that means. Former President Jimmy Carter left the Southern Baptist Convention because of the issue of women not having the same roles as men. I could go in much more detail about this, but the point is, here was a situation where there was an organization, a grouping of churches that were not of one mind. And neither was willing to defer to the other. Each believed they were right. But critics of the resurgence and even the promoters now have regrets in how it was done. Uh, there were some very contentious meetings. And um, Paige Patterson was one of the architects of the resurgence takeover agenda. He believes that the controversy has achieved, has achieved its objective of returning the Southern Baptist Convention to from an alleged leftward drift to a more conservative stance. So he's saying the resurgence was successful. It did what we planned it to do. But he admits to having some regrets. He points out to some vocational disruptions. I guess that means because they're paid ministry and all that. Hurts, sorrow, disrupted friendship as evidence of the price that the controversy has exacted. Friendships and sometimes family relationships have been marred, he says. Churches have been damaged. No one seriously confessing the name of Jesus can rejoice in these sorrows. And he himself writes, I confess that I often second-guess my own actions and agonize over those who have suffered on both sides, including my own family. That is the experience of somebody out there that had issues that needed to be addressed. When there is not a one mind, it actually can't be ignored. It does need to be addressed. It is not a situation It's not a situation that because drawing parameters causes hurts, that means we should not draw parameters. That's not an option. That's not an option. Because the issues will not go away, and generally, almost always, the movement will continually drift unless it is opposed. That is reality. I believe that with all my heart. But as I stated earlier, 
anything, anything that is done, even good things, even opposing liberal heresy, if it's not done in love, is a very bad thing. That's the point here. Love for God and love for others has to be the oil that lubricates all the actions we do. Including this one. And so I'm going to end it up at that. Pray for me. Let us pray for each other. And let us walk it out. And I'm going to read this. Finally, be ye all one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful, be courteous. Well, that could be a verse of the year. That could be. Why don't we just stand and have a word of prayer? Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came upon earth to show us your Father's heart. You were full of grace and you were full of truth. And you have then, Lord, given us that opportunity and the privilege of walking with you in that journey. Grace and truth. Lord, we confess, I confess this morning, having very much a need of your grace and truth in my life. Lord, we at Oasis, we confess that we have a need of that, of grace and truth here. We, Lord, in the, in the greater churches, Lord, that we interact with, we have a need of that, Lord. And we have not always been successful. And neither will we be in the future, I am assuming, Lord. But, Lord, we ask you to guide us and to direct us and to lead it that it may increase, that it may increase more and more. Help us, Lord, to maintain it, what we have, and help us to increase it. Help us, Lord, to uh, delete the things that will uh, detract from it and then add the things, Lord, which will enhance it. Let us look into each other's hearts and eyes, Lord, and, and care for each other deeply, Lord. And then, Lord, let us be true to you because you are the one whom we will answer to, not our brothers, not our sisters, but to you. So, Lord, you are the Lord and you are the one who gives us direction. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.